I want to greet you this morning in the name of that lowly king, the one who Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of his servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalted him because he humbled himself. He was that lowly king riding on that donkey. Not on, a, not on a horse like kings ride, but on a donkey like a common person riding that beast of burden. I had um, Zechariah 9 verse 9 on my notes to read as well this morning, so I won't read that again, but I was thinking as well about Palm Sunday and so on. That's not what my sermon's about, um, but I think maybe um, uh, just to remind us of today being Palm Sunday, we should sing a verse of um, Hosanna, loud Hosanna. Do we know that song good enough by heart? I think we know the first verse at least. I'm wondering if we would, if I would read every verse. Abby, would you get me Zion's praises, please? I'm wondering if I would read every verse if um, if we could sing those songs, if we could sing those verses verse by verse. But we can, we can. Uh, let me just wait on this on this book. Hosanna, loud Hosanna! The little children sang through pillared court and temple. The glorious anthem rang to Jesus who had blessed them. Close, folded to his breast, the children sang their praises. The simplest and the best. So let's start with that, and then I'll read um, every verse as, as we get to it. But let me find this uh, song first. Why don't we stand to sing this song? Hosanna, Hosanna, the little children sang through pillar, cord, and temple. The glorious anthem rang to Jesus who had blessed them. They followed midst an exultant crowd, waving the victor palm branch and shouting clear and loud. Bright angels joined the chorus beyond the cloudless sky. Hosanna in the highest, glory to God on high. From Olivet they followed midst an exultant crowd. 
for Hosanna in the highest, that ancient song we sing. For Christ is our Redeemer, the Lord of heaven, our King. Oh, may we ever praise him with heart and life and voice. And in his blissful presence, eternally rejoice. Hosanna in the highest, that ancient song we sing. For Christ is our Redeemer, the Lord of heaven, our King. Thanks. You may be seated. For a text this morning, turn to John chapter 7. I don't know how much you think about how preachers preach. If you um, think about the, the content of their sermons and how their sermons are structured and so on, I'm going to um, attempt something a little bit different this morning than what I usually preach, than how I usually preach. Most times I preach a, a topical sermon that I have something that I want to preach about. This morning I want to preach out of a text, a textual sermon. This is how Nathan and Leroy usually preach. Now, Kinley usually preaches an expository sermon. So that's um, just for your information. But anyway, for a sermon this morning, I would like to preach out of John chapter 7, verses 37 and following to verse 39. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. This uh, text was assigned to me to uh, to preach here a couple weeks ago. And I thought maybe um, uh, all of us together would benefit from this sermon as well. So um, my apologies to Lloyd and Sarah Ellen for having to listen to this sermon again. So hopefully if it was worth listening to once, it's worth listening to again. Um, but at any rate, um, this is the sermon I have for this morning. And I think God has something for us in it. So this is the last day, the great day of the feast. Now this feast was the Feast of the Tabernacles. And Jesus was at Jerusalem. This feast, this festival of tabernacles was intended to remind the children of Israel and the Jewish people at that time what their ancestors went through and what they had to do in their journey from the land of Egypt after they went through the Red Sea. From the, from the time they went through the Red Sea, the 40 years they were in the wilderness until they crossed the Jordan River. They dwelt in tabernacles, in tents. And this Feast of the Tabernacles was um, a commandment so that they, they would not forget, first of all, what their ancestors went through, but also 
to remind them and us as well that we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come, right? And this was supposed to be a time of rejoicing. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 to 14, Thou shalt observe the feast of, of tabernacles seven days after thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine, and thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter, and thy manservant and thy maidservant, and the Levite and the stranger, and the fatherless and the widow that are that are within thy gates. Thou shalt rejoice in this feast. There's a command here to rejoice. Reminds us of the words to uh, of Paul to the Philippian church to Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. All right. This is supposed to be our mindset as we, like the children of Israel, were going through the wilderness. We are also we have been through that spiritual Red Sea. We have been baptized as believers. We have been baptized unto Jesus Christ. Like we talked about in Sunday school a little bit. We have not crossed the Jordan River. We are in the wilderness of this life, but our mindset is that of rejoicing, remembering how that we don't have a continuing city here, but that we are seeking one to come. Now, apparently, there had been a rabbinic tradition. This is just what... I don't have this from the scriptures. This is uh, what I learned from uh, historians and so on. Apparently there was a rabbinic tradition and not something that was commanded in the Old Testament scriptures, but apparently what they did is they took water from the pool of Siloam and they mixed it with wine and they poured it over the sacrifice as it lay on the altar. And they based their practice, this was the rabbinic practice, they based on Isaiah's words, Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So this was a reminder of the salvation that God wrought. They, he, he brought them through the Red Sea. They dwelt in tabernacles. And this was a time of rejoicing. This is the setting. The, the last day of the great day of the feast stood Jesus and cried, If any man thirst. Now Jesus had a habit, we know, of using his surroundings from which to draw lessons. He spoke of the lilies of the field as he preached on the mountainside. He taught us about giving as he watched the the widow give her last two pennies. And so I, it, it makes sense to me that Jesus would have been referring to this tradition and said, look, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. Now in the book of John, Throughout the Gospels, but in the book of John especially, we have record of how Jesus tries to convince the people of Israel that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. He was the one of whom the scriptures testified, his works testified to him. The Father himself bore witness. In the in the book of John, we have seven uh, different things that testified to Jesus being who he said he was. And Jesus uses this occasion to once again remind the people that he was the promised one. He was the one of whom the scriptures spoke. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He was the one of whom the scriptures were prophesying. Now, if any man thirst, thirsting speaks of a human condition that is dissatisfied. 
You're thirsty, you know you want something, right? Now, there's a famous theologian by the name of Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. And we have a lot of disagreements with him. But he got some things right. He said this. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. What he is saying, what Augustine is saying, is that in all of us, there is a longing. We are looking for something. And it is only in Christ that this thirst can be quenched. This thirst can be said to be one of the most precious things that God has given to us. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were driven from the presence of God by their sin. See, they had voluntarily sinned. But the results were not, they couldn't select the results. The results were inescapable. And there was in their heart and there was in every human heart since then a longing for restoration, a longing for Eden, if you please. There is a thirst in our hearts. And if that thirst is taken from us, I don't know that there would be anything to draw us back to him. One of the saddest situations where a person can find himself is like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And it says that he sought a place of repentance, but he couldn't find it, though he sought it carefully with tears. All right. He had forfeited his birthright he was thirsty but he couldn't quench his thirst the saddest conditions a human can find himself in but if you have a thirst i want you to know that there is nothing more precious to you than that thirst because if that thirst is taken from us there is nothing to draw us to him again And Jesus is inviting us to himself to find our discontentment and our thirst satisfied, our longings fulfilled. Let him come unto me and drink, he says. Reminds us of the word in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy And my burden is light. Come unto me and drink. He said in John 7. In Matthew 11 he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. David talked about God being the place where he finds satisfaction. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and glory so as I have seen thee in thy sanctuary. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters and he that hath no money, come ye. Come. Ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. John, in John 4, we have the um, account of Jesus 
with the woman at the well. And we, we have this discourse of Jesus um, talking to her and of offering himself as the source of the of, of, of the source where she can quench her thirst. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, speaking of the natural water that she was there to draw, shall thirst again. But whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give in him, shall give him, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So there is an eternal satisfaction in the water, in the life, in the sustenance that we find in Jesus. In John 6, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So we have this idea of being thirsty, and we have this idea of, of knowing where to find our satisfaction, of knowing where to find our thirst to be quenched. But it's, it says this, he that believeth on me. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean to believe on Jesus? So we know that we have thirst. We know that our thirst needs to be quenched. And we know that we can find this thirst quenching satisfaction in Christ by believing on him. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to believe on Jesus? Because this is the means by which we're satisfied in him. Now Strong's defines believing as to have faith in, to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being. To have faith in, to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being. This clarifies for us the cloudiness that we sometimes have in our minds about faith and believing. I fear sometimes that we don't understand that believing and having faith, it means the same thing. It's synonymous terms. You can define one by the other. I understand in the German text, they don't have two terms for believing or having faith. It's all just Globen, right? I think sometimes... We have this differentiation in our minds between faith and believing. It goes something like this, that we believe what we can believe and what's not believable we accept by faith. That faith is some kind of psychological putty that fills in our gaps in our understanding. You see, what, what we have to recognize is that what we don't understand is just that. It's our ignorance. And we have to be honest about that. So if there's something that you don't understand, if there's something that you don't know how you should believe about, well, then you don't just say, well, I'm going to have faith to uh, cover all that gap in my understanding. All right. Find out. Study it out. Check it out. Don't reserve faith to fill in what is incoherent or illogical or where you don't know. Faith is far too precious to be used like that. We have to come to God by faith, he says in Hebrews 6. By faith, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So don't use faith as some kind of 
psychological putty. All right? Faith is what we believe. And if you don't know what you believe, then you better find out. Okay? Develop your faith. Faith is a gift. It is far too precious to be misused in such a way. So faith is what we believe. So we have to, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me. In other words, if you have faith in Christ, as the scripture hath said. We have that precious verse in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, we're thinking about the means by which we come to Christ. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul and Silas' words to the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. In the words of the Ethiopian eunuch, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can substitute this idea of believing for having faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So to believe on Jesus means that you accept him for who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the revelation of God to us. He is the Logos of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was God's expression to us. He is the revelation of God to us. He is our redemption. He is our resurrection. He is the coming judge and king. That is what Jesus is. To believe on Jesus is to accept him for who he is and to live accordingly. Now, if you read Romans 2, and maybe you should turn there, let's let's read a passage in Romans chapter 2. If you read Romans 2, and you think about what this says here, and you um, read Revelations 20, where it says that the dead are judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works, but yet we're saved by faith. Uh, It could raise some questions. But let me read Romans 2 here, a, a few verses. Starting to read in verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is just according to the truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, and judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. All right? So 
Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Lines up with what we just read in Revelation, where the dead are going to be judged according to their works. But yet we're saved by faith. So all we need, right, is faith and we have salvation. Well then, how is it fair that we are judged by our works? Well, it's just like this. Is that being saved by faith and being judged by our works are completely compatible because belief produces your actions. What you do is a 100% accurate depiction of what you believe. There's a direct cause and effect relationship between faith and works. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to believe that He is the human revelation of the divine will. To believe that He is the sacrifice for your sins and mine. To believe that by His resurrection you have been given the power to live above sin. And to believe that you have the, to believe that we have the blessed hope of His return is a cause that will have an effect to believe is a cause with the effect of a life that is lived by that belief. So there is an authentic faith, and that's what I've been describing to you. There is a demonic faith. Now, demonic faith accepts the truth of God's existence. It accepts his power. It accepts his judgment, but it refuses to change. The devils also believe and tremble, James writes. And so it refuses to live according to its understanding of truth. That is, if you please, a demonic faith. But a genuine faith causes a life to be lived according to it. Now, there's a um, Canadian psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson. Some of you may have heard that name. Um, and he teaches some out of Carl Jung, and he teaches some out of all kinds of different sources. But one of the things he does is he teaches about the Old Testament. Now, let me let me just uh, say this, that the, these days masking is a big deal because masking filters out... Um, the, the, the viruses that, that you'd otherwise take in, right? Well, if you listen to him, and I'm not necessarily recommending this, but if you do, you better have some pretty good, some surgical-grade masks over your ears because he's got a lot of viruses in the things that he says. But there's something he says that I want to make, that I want to use as a point. And he, sa- he teaches out of the Bible. But he refuses to answer the question as to whether or not he believes in God. And the reason that he refuses to answer that question, he says it's too profound for me to answer. To believe in someone who is supreme demands so much of my life that I can't answer that question. All right? He's got a point. Now, is he right? No, he's not completely right. We wouldn't be commanded to believe if believing were too lofty and ideal. Believing couldn't be the means of salvation if we weren't able to believe. But he has a point. And sometimes, I'm afraid, we don't stop to think about what all belief 
really means. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So belief is the means of our salvation. But it is demanding. It's not demanding as in it is coercive. But it is demanding in a way that truth changes the heart. That I'm sorry, that true belief changes the heart to such an extent that the believer not only wants to do what is right, but that he will do what is right. The famous line from Menno Simons is, True evangelical faith cannot lie sleeping. All right, that's... that's um. Just part of what he said. This is this is the whole phrase of the context of, of what he said right there. True, ev- true evangelical faith is of such a nature that it cannot lie dormant. It spreads itself out in all kinds of righteousness and fruits of love. It dies to flesh and blood. It destroys all lusts and forbidden desires. It seeks, serves, and fears God in its inmost soul. It clothes the naked. It feeds the hungry. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It aids and consoles the sad. It does good to those who do it harm. It serves those who harm it. It prays for those who persecute it. It teaches, admonishes, and judges us with the word of the Lord. It seeks those who are lost. It binds up what is wounded. It heals the sick. It saves what is strong or sound. It becomes all things to all people. The persecution, suffering, and anguish that come to it for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the Lord's truth, have become a glorious joy and comfort to it. That is evangelical faith. That is a real living faith. Now, it would seem, perhaps it could seem audacious or boastful to claim that you can believe something when something is so profound and when it demands so much of you. Thinking of it in that way makes being able to believe a most precious gift. And even just scratching the surface of what it means to believe is the most humbling experience. But see, with an understanding of faith like that, The opposite of faith is not so much doubt as it is disobedience. I came across this quote. I don't know who to credit with it, and I wish I would. But this is is how it is. Only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. We think of faith in that way. I think we can identify with the man who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. And Jesus asked him if he has the faith to believe that he can heal him. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Immortal words, but so relatable as we think of what belief demands of us. So how is it that a person can have the privilege of of believing 
or the privilege of faith. And that, I think, it's because we have been made in the image of God, distinct in all of creation, man has been given the power to choose and he has been given the capacity to believe. All right, he that believeth on me, our text says, hopefully. We don't read that quite the same as we did before. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said. Now, I don't know what scripture Jesus was referring to. He may have been referring to the one in Isaiah. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. That is... Um, supposedly the the text that the that the rabbinic tradition was based on but there's there's another there's another uh possibility here and i I don't know exactly what jesus was referring to but there's a metaphor in scripture that is just fascinating and that is that the water of life the water of life flows out of the place where God is in fellowship with man. Think about Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Now, I don't know what kind of geography this was, but follow me here as as I read this text in Genesis 2. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden, to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. So here is a river that is flowing from a certain spot and is going out and watering. All right? That's not how rivers run these days. These days, rivers collect runoff from streams and creeks and they become um, rivers that run to the sea, right? But here in Eden, there was a river that was running out of the place where God was dwelling with man and it was watering the earth. Now we have also this picture in Revelations 22 in the great city, the holy Jerusalem, that is the bride, the lamb's wife, the church. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God. And of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here again, the river is running out of the dwelling place of God. It is running out of where God is in fellowship with his people. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, the waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. From the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the altar, from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. 
And he brought me out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. And he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters and the waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the, on the other. And he said unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go out into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that every living, everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live, whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engidai even unto Enegliam. And they shall be a place to spread forth nests. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea exceeding many. But the miry places thereof and the marishes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. And by the river upon the bank thereof and on this side and on that shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. The fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. Now there's some interesting things here. And that is that the river begins relatively small. The water is ankle deep. And it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper until it's so deep that it encompasses Ezekiel. And there's no way for him to get across. There's another parallel here down uh, later on in this passage. And that is, it sounds almost like uh, Revelations 22, where the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and they bring forth their fruit month by month. All right, now it talks about here that they, uh, in verse 8, these waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea. It seems to me that this can be no other than uh, something flowing from the temple of God and going down into the Dead Sea. And it brings life to that dead and dying place. The Dead Sea is the lowest, the surface of the Dead Sea is the lowest point of dry land anywhere on earth. There's no way for the water to get out of there except by evaporation. So all that's left is a salty brine. It's about ten times salter than the ocean. So there's no visible life in the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea, dead as it is, is dying. They're taking water out of the Jordan River for irrigation, and the level of the Dead Sea is dropping about three feet a year. So here's a Dead Sea that is dying. If Dead Sea can get deader, that's what you got. But it's a pertinent picture of the world we live in. Now think of this passage as a parable of God's intention for his people in this world. This describes the water of life flowing 
from where God dwells in fellowship with his people from the sanctuary and transforming the dead world that's dying into a place of life and fruitfulness. There's different passages we could read about the deadness of the world. And I don't know if we're going to think about that, but you know what it is. You know that in your own experience, the deadness of your heart. And it doesn't take much to look around and see the deadness of the world around us. But there is a change when the water from the temple flows into it. It says from the, from Engidai unto Enget, and 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 Egliam. Engidai is on the west and Egliam is on the east. The whole thing is transformed. Except for, there's a dose of reality here in verse 11. The miry places thereof and the marishes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. The places that resist its flow, the places that resist the flow of this healing water remain dead. There is a decision that every little spot in this dead world, every individual that this world, in this world, has to make. Individuals can resist, but the fact remains that where God's people are obedient to Him, change will happen. Where God's people believe in Him, change will happen. Life is brought to this dead world. Now it says in our text that this is a result of the, this spake He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given. So this is a result of God's Spirit coming into the world. By this he meant the Spirit, another translation says, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. It is out of those who believe in Jesus that the fruit of the Spirit will flow. The fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. These things that there is no law against come out of the believer. They come out of the dwelling place of God. They come out of his temple. They come out of his people, his church. This water of life is flowing. God's people bring life to the world first by their good works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. First Peter 2. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. So God's people bring life to the world by their good works, and second, they bring life to the world by their proclamation of the truth. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus says. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now it says that out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. These things come from the innermost being. See, results of faith are not coercive. Fruit is not forced 
by anything from outside. Fruit in an orchard is never hung on a tree by the orchardist. Fruit is always a result of what the tree is. So out of his belly, out of his innermost being, shall flow these rivers of living water. An individual or a church, which is the community of believers who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, will be moved by compassion as Jesus was. Where they go and where they work, they will bring life to the world. They will have a good Samaritan kind of love that binds up wounded hearts. It will pour in oil and wine of love and will take care of spiritual and physical needs at their own expense. This is God's call for us as his people and the world will be a better place for it. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By God's grace, may that be our testimony. Let's kneel for prayer.